Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care program, Progress in the Treatment of Myelodysplastic Syndrome, or MDS, a very important program and very important uh, uh, blood cancer for us to be discussing today. And I am delighted to have some of you on the call today. Um, today's uh, program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as blood cancer organizations. And today's program is supported by Celgene Corporation, Novartis Oncology, and Takeda Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have on the program today over 200 participants. You come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants today from Canada, Colombia, India, Monaco, New Zealand, and Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. Really credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and our, I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Ruben Nessa. Dr. Messer is Director, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio, MD Anderson, Mays Family Foundation Distinguished University, Presidential Chair, Professor of Medicine, UT Health San Antonio Cancer Center, and NCI Designated Cancer Center. Now, Dr. Messer will be addressing an overview of myelodysplastic syndromes, or MDS, in the context of COVID-19, diagnosis and staging, current standard of care, key questions to ask your healthcare team during telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Messa. Hello. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here today, uh, and as always, uh, very much enjoy being on these programs. It's a, it's a wonderful service and allows a time for, for a great discussion, both regarding uh, diseases, new therapies, as well as other aspects of helping people through it. So my task is to really discuss and lay the groundwork in terms of MDS, but also make some comments regarding what's it like to be an MDS patient during this difficult time that we all face the risk of, of COVID and COVID-19. So first, myelodysplastic syndrome. You know, it's an awful long name. It's a confusing name. And for many of you, perhaps the time you were diagnosed is the first time you've even heard this term. What it means is myelo means bone, and dysplastic means that the cells in your bone marrow look different than they should. Uh, so that is the origin of the term. What we've learned over time is that what this really is, it is a type of bone marrow disease that is probably most accurately thought of as a chronic leukemia, meaning that it is a disease affecting how the bone marrow works, the cells within the bone marrow that makes it a chronic leukemia. So what is leukemia? Well, leukemia includes a family of maybe over 50 different types of diseases that can affect the bone marrow. 
of which some of them include the disease that we call acute leukemia. Some of you probably heard this term or maybe had people who were affected by it. In acute leukemia, the bone marrow is overtaken by early cells in the bone marrow called blasts that grow uncontrollably. In many ways, this behaves and is characterized like a type of a cancer. Myelodysplastic syndrome, or MDS, is a chronic leukemia, meaning it's not acute leukemia, but it has that potential. Now, both MDS and acute leukemia, the main difficulty is that it interferes with the function of the bone marrow. The bone marrow is where our blood is made, and our blood is about half cells and half water. And of the cells, the vast majority of them are red blood cells. That's what makes our blood red. And the purpose of red blood cells is to carry oxygen from our lungs to the rest of the body. When our red blood cells are low, that is what we call being anemic. And when people get a transfusion of blood, typically it is getting a transfusion of someone else's red blood cells to help them carry oxygen from their lungs to the rest of the body. Now, in addition to red blood cells, we have the white blood cells. They are the ones that help to fight infections and the platelets which help the blood to clot. Myelodysplastic syndrome typically is interfering with the production of one, two, or all three of those main types of cells. So as I visit with a patient with MDS, we again assess, one, do they have that disease? Meaning there's a variety of reasons that people can have a drop in the red blood cell count or have anemia or have a drop in the white cell count or have a drop in the plate account. Some of these causes of anemia that you've likely heard of, people who are iron deficient, people that have bleeding, people that perhaps don't have enough vitamin B12. In myelodysplastic syndrome, people are anemic even though they have sufficient amounts of iron and vitamins in their bloodstream. It's not a question of not having enough of those key building blocks. It's a question of the bone marrow not functioning to produce enough of those red blood cells. So the most common feature that patients with MDS have is that they have anemia. And if a normal hemoglobin of, for men is 13 to 17, let's say, or for women about 12 to 15, in MDS that number might be as low as 10 or even below 8 or even needing red blood cell transfusion. So that's the most common feature. And some people only have that. Others might also have a drop in the white cell count or the platelet count. Now that drop in the red blood cell count and that anemia might give people shortness of breath and it might interfere with how body's ability to either exercise, do activities of daily living, or affect them in a variety of ways. Now, a drop in the white blood cell count can lead to risk of infection, particularly important during this time. And we look at, there's not only one type of white blood cell, but there's several types that have different roles in either fighting bacteria or viruses or fungal infections. Uh, people who have too few white blood cells, again, there's that risk of infection. The platelets help the blood to clot with a normal value of 150 to 450,000 platelets per cubic centimeter of blood. And 
those that have a drastic decrease in the platelets have an increased risk of bleeding, namely a platelet count of below 10,000 or sometimes below 20,000 might have a risk of bleeding, sometimes even without injury. Now, we diagnose MDS by a bone marrow biopsy. First, we have to be suspicious that someone has MDS, and we're suspicious if there's not another obvious cause, if their if their iron B12 and other levels are normal. Uh, MDS is much more common as we age, so we're much more suspicious of it uh, as we age. Sometimes if the blood count drop is very severe and we don't have a good alternative explanation, we will perform a bone marrow biopsy. Uh, people lay down on their hip. A uh, small needle is put in just to the crest of the back of the hip. The inside of the bone marrow is looked at under the microscope to see whether MDS is present. We complement uh, the ability to diagnose that both in how the bone marrow looks as well as we look at genetic tests, both of what we call the chromosomes as well as the sometimes uh, genetic mutations which might be present. And with that, we can put individuals into different risk categories from low risk to high risk according to a prognostic scoring system that looks at blood counts, genetic features, and any evidence of movement toward acute leukemia to put people according to stage. Uh, so we diagnose them, we get a sense of risk, we see how aggressive the disease is, how it is affecting them, has it led to transfusions or infections or bleeding, and is it moving towards acute leukemia. Now, how do we treat MDS? We now have several approaches. One, in all individuals, we're providing them supportive care. You know, if they need a transfusion, we give them a transfusion. If they have an infection, we treat the infection. If they need a plated transfusion, we'll give a plated transfusion. So everyone gets supportive care. Next, individuals with anemia, we may consider giving them an injection of a medicine that is called erythropoietin, or there's a variety of different uh, analogs of erythropoietin that are called erythropoietin-stimulating agents. They help, it's a hormone to help encourage more red blood cell production, particularly if the body is not making enough of its own erythropoietin. Next, individuals that have lower risk disease have a lot of anemia, particularly if they have a deletion of the Q arm of the fifth chromosome, something very specific, but something your doctor knows a lot about, might benefit from a medicine that is called lenalidomide, which is a pill that can help to encourage the production of more red blood cells and can uh, improve MDS. The, the medicines that we have in general do not cure MDS. We'll talk about potential cures in just a moment. Now, many individuals have intermediate or higher risk MDS. And with them, the standard of care is a group of medicines that we call hypomethylating agents. And this includes a medicine called both azacitidine or vidaza, as well as dacitabine or dacogen. These are more intravenous medicines. They can improve low blood counts uh, over time. 
They are typically given in a cancer center or alongside people getting chemotherapy, although they're not really chemotherapy in the traditional sense. They can help to prolong or delay the movement of the disease towards acute leukemia. And in many ways, they become one of the standards of treatment for the disease. Now, these treatments can prolong life, but they typically do not cure the disease. We recently have had the approval of an additional drug onto this group, a medicine called Lospatercept, which also can help to improve anemia in individuals with MDS uh, as an additional medication. Now, stem cell transplantation or bone marrow transplant, and you might consider them uh, we consider those terms relatively equivalent. Most of the time now when we speak of bone marrow transplantation and individuals getting bone marrow from someone else can cure MDS, but it's a complex decision based on your health, the risk of the disease, uh, the availability of a donor, uh, as well as uh, the rest of your health and many other factors. So typically, that's an early discussion with your hematologist. Is that a therapy that should be a consideration either now or at some point in the future? Or maybe that's a therapy that longer term, either because of your age, other illnesses, you know, should not be considered. Now, what does the COVID-19 crisis mean for patients with MDS? Well, first, the COVID-19 is a very severe infection, as you've all learned. And what makes it different than things like the flu is that there's a higher risk of people becoming very ill with it if they acquire the COVID uh, infection. Uh, not everyone does become ill, thank God, uh, but way more individuals than we would like. So in the ideal world, you know, none of us would get this. So one... Uh, really try to protect yourself and follow local guidance and, and uh, suggestions, you know, and I would strongly suggest un universal masking during this period. My family and I, we wear a mask everywhere we go. It's a simple matter and probably one of the most effective things along with good hand washing and not touching your face that you can have. Now, MBS patients, uh, many of them may be at higher risk of acquiring the infection. Not every MDS patient is at higher risk, but many are. Uh, additionally, if they were to develop the infection, it is possible that they may have higher risk of complications due to age as well as prior experiences that have been seen in both China and Europe. Patients with blood disease like MDS might have a more difficult time. Now, the key during this period, and I mean this period between now and really when we have an effective vaccine to truly control the disease, is you have to take good care of your health. So stay in close contact with your healthcare team using both telemedicine and, when necessary, live visits, uh, both for being able to be seen, to be able to receive transfusions, getting your blood counts checked, receiving medicines, and as my colleague, Dr. Kamraji will, will discuss also potentially participating in clinical trials. Medical centers, cancer centers specifically, whether it be at Moffitt, where my colleague is at, uh, here at UT Health San Antonio, or other centers have gone to extensive lengths 
to make these environments safe for you to be able to receive the health care that you need. We screen everyone that comes in the building. We have kept still whatever support staff we can at home to decrease the, the number of people in the environment. We practice universal masking and social distancing. Uh, we test everyone for COVID who is going to receive uh, any medicine, procedure, be hospitalized, uh, or otherwise. So these environments are safe. They are rigorously cleaned. There is universal masking. I think the greatest difficulty we've seen uh, in this phase of this crisis is that during the peak periods, during March and April, there was a lot of delayed health care, and now we're seeing a lot of that come to bear in terms of individuals that became sick during that time uh, and delayed their routine health care for a variety of reasons. So uh, with MDS, the, we have a lot of treatment options. We've got some good established ways to, to treat the disease. People can be diagnosed, staged, and treated safely, even during this period of COVID. But there's a lot of exciting and new and emerging treatments uh, approaching uh, and look forward to uh, addressing uh, your questions in the Q&A period. But let me hand it back over to Dr. Messner to introduce our next speaker to talk about new treatments. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Nessa. That was really outstanding and, and just really so informative to everyone on the call, um, really uh, identifying many of the issues of treatment and what's available to people and really accessing outstanding care and also the protections that exist in both using telemedicine and telehealth, but also in actually when you go in to see one of your physicians, that reassurance is so helpful, I'm sure, to many of our participants. So thank you so much. And I, uh, there always will be questions for you during the q and I'm sure. And our next speaker is Dr. Rami Kamrashi. And Dr. Kamrashi is Senior Member and Professor of Oncology, Oncologic Sciences, Section Head, Leukemia and MDS Vice Chair, Malignant Hematology Department, Moffitt Cancer Center. And Dr. Kamrakshi will be addressing new and emerging treatment approaches, the role of clinical trials, how research increases your treatment options, tips to manage symptoms and treatment side effects, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments for your follow-up care after treatment. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kamrakshi. Good afternoon. Thank you for the kind introduction, and it's a pleasure also to be on the conference today, and hopefully this will be helpful for uh, all of you uh, listening, and uh, as mentioned, we will be very happy to answer any questions. Uh, I think uh, Dr. Ramesa set the stage nicely uh, to move into talking about what's new and emerging uh, for patients with MDS. I would start saying definitely what we do, as Dr. Mesa mentioned, when we see patients is we go through three steps. Uh, the first one is really establishing the diagnosis, making sure the diagnosis is correct. And many times this is straightforward, but there are cases where we you know, need to spend more time assuring the right and correct diagnosis is made because, as mentioned, there are many diseases that mimic MDS. The next step where we are basing the treatment, as mentioned, is this risk stratification, where we you know, tailor the treatment according to the disease risk. And the goals of treatment could be a little bit different between someone what we call lower risk MDS, lower chances of going to leukemia, versus a higher risk MDS. 
And we've made progress, uh, definitely, as mentioned, we have several treatments available. We have a curative strategy like the allogeneic stem cell transplant, but there is a lot of room of improvement. Before going into some exciting new medications or treatments, uh, I would say the advancement in understanding the biology of the disease and the uh, integration of molecular uh, techniques where we can look now at the individual gene abnormalities in MDS had definitely uh, improved you know, our understanding of the disease, the way we approach the disease, as well as our treatment. So nowadays when we see patients, we are not only looking at their blood counts uh, and the bone marrow, but we look at the chromosome makeup, which are the control center of the cells, but we also go deep at the gene level where we see the mishappenings that led to the occurrence of the MDS and the uh, low blood counts. Now we use this information in you know, aiding us with the diagnosis better risk stratify the patient, but we are starting to tailor the treatment based on that information. So that in the last five years by itself had been a new way uh, that changed our approach to treatment of patients with uh, MDS. There are several agents that are in clinical trials and uh, show some promise. Obviously, the time will not allow me through, to go through all of them. I'll highlight a few uh, that had been presented and actually being presented this week at the European Hematology Meeting. Uh, and I will try to divide them talking about what is you know, coming up for what we call lower-risk MDS. So again, in, in this situation, the myeloblasts or the leukemia cells are not increased. Uh, the chromosome makeup of the cells is not what we consider bad. And our goal of treatment is really to improve the blood counts, avoid transfusions, improve the quality of the patient uh, that they can you know, maintain their uh, daily activities adequately. So in the lower-risk MDS, there are several agents. Uh, Dr. Mesa mentioned Lispatercept. That's now actually approved for uh, MDS patients with a subtype called Ringsidroblast. Uh, but this had been the first drug approved in the last 10 years for MDS, and it's been exciting for us to be able now to offer it to the patients outside clinical trials. This drug works like on a late stage of the red blood cell development, stimulating the red blood cells. It's a monoclonal antibody. It's an injection given three, every three weeks. In the clinical trials, when it was compared to placebo in, in lower-risk patients, and the response rate of patients becoming red blood cell transfusion independent were as high as 40%. And in patients that are not heavily transfusion dependent, responses could be at high, as high as 60 or 70%. Again, those are patients have a unique subtype of MDS where we see under the microscope cells that have iron staining around the nucleus called ring sidroblast. And also, they, uh, when we look at one year, almost 40 or 50% of the patients remain transfusion independent. Uh, the treatment is well tolerated with no major side effects. Uh, in addition, also in some patients, even if they didn't become transfusion independent, we see re trans uh, reduction in the risk or in the magnitude or the burden of the red blood cells. So now this this patercept is being moved to be tested up front more early. Uh, the trials, the, the approval currently is for patients after uh, erythroid stimulating agents like erythropoietin uh, that Dr. Mesa referred to as usually the first step in treating anemia. So now we have clinical trials looking at lispatercept, comparing it to uh, erythroid stimulating agents in the upfront setting. And we also have studies looking at combinations. So we'll see more with lispatercept uh, uh, coming up uh, hopefully soon. 
the other drug briefly to mention is a, a drug called Emtilistat. This is a drug that uh, targets telomeres, uh, which tends to be shortened in MDS patients. Telomeres are the web proteins like our, that we see during the division of the cells. Uh, if they are shorter, we see uh, uh, we, we observe that in MDS patients and sometimes also in myelofibrosis. This drug had been tested in myeloproliferative diseases, and at this uh, meeting that's ongoing actually in Europe, uh, they are presenting the information in, in lower-risk MDS patients. It's an injection given once every every four weeks, and it's a smaller study still, but uh, in thir among 38 patients, uh, around 16, 42% became completely transfusion independent, and a large subset of those patients had a hemoglobin increase more than three grams. So this is now moving to the last step, which is called phase three, in testing, and again, hopefully, uh, we will confirm those early uh, promising results uh, and translate that to a uh, option for our patients. Dr. Mesa mentioned the uh, hypomethylating agents, azacitidine or vidaza or decitabine dacogen, that had been a mainstay that we use for both lower and higher risk. Those drugs now are being developed as oral medication where the patient will be able to take them at home. So there is oral azacitidine and oral decitabine, and those both are being tested in several aspects of MDS or risk groups, including the lower risk and the high risk. Uh, at the European Hematology meeting, there is a presentation on the oral azacitidine in patients what we call lower risk disease, but they had low platelets and low blood transfusions. And the uh, uh, presentation uh, demonstrated significant benefit compared to placebo, where one-third of the patients became transfusion independent and observing also increase in the platelet account for those patients. So this is something that we are going to see more and more shifting to oral treatments for the patients, which is more convenient. Uh, interestingly, those compounds we've been, uh, we have observed responses in patients even after exposure to uh, azacitidine or decitabine uh, subcutaneously or in the vein. And uh, also those medications may have role in what we call a maintenance. Uh, there had been studies done in acute myeloid leukemia where in the maintenance setting they've shown survival advantage and we are starting to think of using that for patients that undergo allogeneic stem cell transplant with MDS and consider that as a maintenance strategy. So those are like two or three drugs that have been developed in the lower risk. Moving to the higher risk MDS, as Dr. Mesa uh, said, we usually think of allogeneic stem cell transplant uh, because it's the only curative option. And uh, uh, in, in reality, at our center and many centers, uh, we almost don't have an age cutoff for the transplant nowadays. Uh, age is function, so if patients have no major comorbidities and function, we consider transplant. But with the best intention, uh, probably you know, subset of patients will uh, be able to go to transplant. So most of the patients will receive the hypomethylating agents, either cytidine or decitabine, as the treatment. And many of the ongoing trials are trying to improve on that backbone. So to try to have other medications that will improve either the response rate or the duration, uh, because again, as mentioned, those medications work for a while, then they stop working. And I think we are close, uh, hopefully in the coming year or two, to get some of those medications approved uh, because the studies so far have been showing very promising data. 
the first one I want to bring up is a medication called Magrolimab or anti-CD47. Uh, CD47 is like an antenna or what we call a receptor on the cell that usually is overexpressed in patients with MDS or AML and blocks our immune system, you know, recognizing the MDS cells. Uh, uh, particularly uh, the macrophages, which are part of our immune system that usually will eliminate those cells. So this drug will bind that antenna and allow our immune system and the macrophages to handle the MDS cells. So this drug is being developed in both in MDS and in leukemia. And the study uh, that was presented again uh, this week uh, up was updated on around 39 patients with MDS, uh, showing that we are almost doubling the response rates uh, uh, at six months uh, compared to azacitidine alone. Uh, half of the patients, uh, the chromosome abnormalities disappear. And even when we go at the deeper level, which we call minimal residual disease nowadays with the uh, molecular testing or sophisticated techniques, uh, one-third of those patients are becoming, you know, um, what we call MRD negative, that we cannot see any evidence of the disease as deep as we go. So this is promising and again moving into a phase three. The other drug briefly to mention is APR246. Uh, this is for a particular subset of patients that have a gene mutation called P53. P53 is a protein that acts like almost a break on the cycle or on the cell. So when we say the protein is abnormal or the P53 is mutated, it means the breaks are off and the cell's regulation or division is not well regulated. And we've learned over the past several years that patients with P53, unfortunately, uh, have a worse outcome, sometimes may not respond to intensive chemotherapy. Uh, so this medication binds to the protein and it restores the breaks on or restores the wild function of the protein. And again, this has been tested in a phase one, phase two, and just recently, this week or last week, finished the phase three, where patients were randomized between either getting azacitidine alone or azacitidine and this medication. In the phase one, phase two, again, we see doubling almost of the response rate and encouraging signals, and we are hopeful that the phase three will confirm that, and that will lead to the drug approval. And one can think of using it in, in different settings as well, such as post-transplant maintenance. The other drug also to mention uh, is a drug called Pevindostat. I apologize for the names. All those drugs are named in a difficult way. Uh, this is a medication that targets an enzyme called NED8, N-E-D-D-8, uh, which is involved in the uh, degradation of the proteins in the cell. And this, again, was tested in combination with azacitidine. Uh, this was actually a randomized trial uh, where patients were randomized between getting azacitidine alone or pavindostat plus azacitidine. And again, uh, we see in this study a doubling of the response rates uh, in the combination and what we call the event-free survival, which is progression of the disease uh, to leukemia uh, and event-free survival uh, was better with the combination. So this is another promising drug uh, that's moving uh, forward. Finally, in the higher risk, uh, there is a medication called Venetoclax. This is a pill that actually was approved by the FDA for treatment of leukemia, especially in patients that are not able to get intensive chemotherapy. Um, 
nowadays the standard has become using the either cytidine or the cytidine plus the spin, and we are trying to move this for patients with MDS. So it's been looked at in the same fashion in combination. But the other way we've used this and the studies had looked at is basically patients that had prior azacitidine or decitabine and lost the response. And at this point, we come back, we continue or restart the azacitidine and add this pill. And we are observing around, you know, 20, 30 percent responses with this approach. Uh, so this is a strategy that we can use nowadays, actually, for some patients. And it seems also to show a promising signal of survival at uh, at one year compared to historically what we've seen after those uh, hypomethylating agents stop working. And there is a huge list that I cannot go uh, over. I, I think sometimes it's helpful to look at those mutations. There are other drugs that sometimes we use, we borrow from leukemia or myeloproliferative disease use. Um, there are certain mutations nowadays that there are drugs approved by the FDA to use in AML, such as a class of drugs called IDH inhibitors that sometimes we borrow and use after the uh, hypomethylating agents uh, use. And they are also in trials in combination with azacitidine, similar to the fashion that I've been discussing. So to summarize the clinical trial part, I think you know we have two or three promising drugs for the lower risk MDS, where their goal is to improve the blood transfusions. And the higher risk, as I highlighted, most of those are done in combination, which is with the standard treatment. So every patient that goes on trial will at least get the clinical the, the standard of care currently, which are the hypomethylating agents, in addition to possibly getting the uh, treatment or the drug. In terms of role of clinical trials, and obviously this is an example where clinical trials have, had led to, um, you know, several promising drugs. Hopefully, uh, in the short term, we'll be able to get approved. Uh, and uh, you know, and cl cl clinical trials is really the only way for us to get the uh, th those medications for patients. Uh, obviously, there are some barriers uh, for clinical trials. One is the perception of benefit uh, by the patients for clinical trials. And obviously, from our side, we always tell patients we cannot promise a response on clinical trial, but most of the medications that are tested have a good biological rationale to be tested. Uh, they've done extensive studying in animals to assure the safety. And the clinical trials go through different phases. A phase one, where we are looking at the safety more, Typically, we use that after we've used all our, you know, standards of care. And then phase two, we are like, look, everybody will get the combinations of the drug. And then phase three, where we randomize patients between those drugs, the new drugs, in addition to some of the standard treatments. So the, the, there is always some probably benefit for the patients because the clinical trials look at the patients in a meticulous way. Uh, Obviously, there could be side effects for those medications. Uh, but uh, there is a wide perception that some of those are just being used for testing, but in reality, there is benefit for the patients. The other barrier in my mind is typically the how attractive is the study. Obviously, when we have a drug that we've already seen some responses, uh, more uh, patients are willing to go and study. Uh, but the availability of the study somewhere around is a major issue because some of many of our patients unfortunately sometimes drive three or four hours to come to go to come to enroll in clinical trials and that the logistics of that 
could be cumbersome and you know that can sometimes you know uh, limit the accrual on clinical trials or patients' ability to enroll in clinical trials. We try our best to work around those logistics, uh, providing some lodging during the treatment, but still it's a major issue. Uh, we are actually part of a consortium that looks at uh, MDS patients. We collect data on all the patients we see, and we looked among almost 2,000 patients uh, with MDS. Only 23% of those ended participating on in, in, in uh, interventional clinical trial. And uh, there was some correlation between the higher risk patients enrolling more in clinical trials. But interestingly, we actually do see a survival advantage for patients enrolling on clinical trials. There was a survival advantage. Uh, Again, this could reflect the benefits from the treatment. It could reflect that the clinical trials have certain strict eligibility criteria, that they require good kidney functions, good liver functions. but all over, we do see benefit, and we do encourage patients to enroll in clinical trials. Again, sometimes trials could be observation only also, that we are collecting some samples and you know, studying the biology of the disease that will help other patients. Uh, we think of studies, as I mentioned, either if we had run out of the standard of care treatment, or we think of trials in combination with the current standard of treatment in the hope to improve the response rate, the duration of response, the survival for patients. Uh, in terms of how to approach clinical trials at the COVID time, uh, Dr. Mesa set the uh, you know the platform for that and, and discussed how at all the centers uh, we've been really taking all the precautions to try to minimize the infection. Uh, there had been some clinical trials on hold uh, because of the COVID infection. Uh, we try to look at every trial individually, and if we think that there is a benefit for the patients, we have not hold the accrual trials, and we still enroll patients, and most of the sites also the clinical trials are available. Uh, we've modified some of the visits because on clinical trials, there is always more visits to assure the patient's safety and efficacy. Some of those could be done through uh, telehealth or uh, telemedicine. Now, in terms of my tips or advanced recommendations in how to manage symptoms and treatment side effects, uh, this is, again, a long topic. I think the first thing is that the patient always needs to be advocate, and this is obviously a shared, uh, you know, uh, uh, issue between the patient and the nurses and the physicians. Uh, One can think of disease-related symptoms uh, like fatigue, manifestations of anemia, low blood counts, neutropenia, platelets, and the related symptoms to that. Uh, Obviously, with treatments, improving the blood counts, transfusions, one could improve some of the symptoms. My general recommendations for patients in terms of exercise is to do a healthy balance, you know, things in everything. Uh, so exercise and, you know, regular exercise is encouraged for patients that always help with fatigue and disease-related symptoms and improve the patient's functional status. Um, in in terms of diet, there is really no diet proven to improve the blood count per se for patients that are neutropenic, uh, which means their white blood cell count is low at a risk of bacterial infection. There are certain types of diets that you know we recommend to the patients, or basically avoiding the things that will increase the risk of infection. Now. Treatment-related adverse events, there are obviously side effects for many of those medications that we use. I think one of the most important things is, you know, the the education part that goes between the patient and the team to set the expectations, to know what we are monitoring. Uh, In general, most of those medications can sometimes lead to decreasing the blood count further, particularly at the first 
couple of months before the medications kick in and we see the response. So it's very important to monitor the blood count. Uh, don't be discouraged if the blood transfusions are increased a little bit at the beginning. Some of that actually sometimes correlate with the response, like when we use this uh, lenalidomide pill in patients with deletion 5Q, all responders will drop the blood count at the beginning. But it's important to check the blood count uh, on a regular basis, get blood transfusions if needed, and obviously the most important if patients had fever with low blood counts, to call the doctors immediately and come for IV medications. Other side effects vary. Some of those medications can cause some constipation. Some of them cause rash. Uh, so again, those are things that we can help with the symptoms as well. I think the key really in, in management of the symptoms is the team approach to this between the nurse, the physician, and the patient, and the patient being educated to know what to anticipate and, and look for and approach their team quickly when, when those uh, symptoms or, or you know side effects are emerging. Finally, uh, just to briefly touch on telehealth or telemedicine, um, obviously this is something that had been planned in the past, but at the time of COVID got accelerated, uh, that many patients nowadays are being offered a telehealth or telemedicine. I think those are appropriate in the right setting. Uh, we try also to minimize, obviously, the patient uh, risk and exposure. So uh, my advice is typically to explore working with your physicians uh, if this is an appropriate uh, for the care. Uh, obviously, there are patients that are not receiving any active therapy on observation where we check the blood counts every two to three months, uh, and those patients are perfectly candidate for those. Uh, there are obviously patients that are getting active therapy. They have to come to the center, but in between, sometimes we may have visits uh, just to assure the safety where we could discuss the side effects on the phone. Uh, the patient can get the blood count somewhere closer to home, uh, and we look at that. Um, but with MDS and many of the blood diseases we do, we obviously need routine blood count checking and if there is a need for transfusion to bring the patients in for transfusion. Uh, there are different platforms uh, and logistics for using the telehealth. Most of the time, the hospital uh, or the institution will contact the patient, set those platforms. Uh, I would say obviously always work with the doctor and the nurse team to get the pertinent labs needed uh, and the information, keep log of your blood transfusion transfusions, when were the treatments, the dates, all that stuff, and prepare an advanced question that you want to ask you know, your doctor and what are the goals to achieve from those telemedicine or telehealth. And if we were ever concerned about something, we obviously can bring the patients in. From my perspective, it's given me different perspective, actually a nice perspective that, you know, obviously the setting of the clinic is always a little bit scary or like, you know, it's busy. Nowadays, some of those telemedicine, like I'm seeing patients in their, you know, living room, in the kitchen. It really gives a different perspective. It, In a way, it improves the relation. And we've been very successful uh, conducting many of those. Uh, there are sometimes we tell the patient, we think we need to see you, you have to come in. But it's reasonable to consider in the right setting and in, in discussion with, with your team. And uh, by this, I think I've covered most of the stuff, uh, and I'll be happy to take any questions. Oh, Dr. Kamraki, that was really outstanding, really. And I have to say, uh, in, in your concluding remark about the um, telehealth and telemedicine appointments and how much, um, how important they are actually in terms of that talking time with the physician determining what next to do and, and really um, seeing the whole different perspective of seeing someone who hasn't like rushed in to get to the clinic on time and gone through it. They're really talking to you on the phone and so or um, 
that's really important for everyone to hear on the call today. It's, it's, um, you know, it's been a, it's been something that has been developed to some of you who actually travel very long distances for your appointments. Um, it's particularly helpful as well. And it's also at this, in this environment right now, it can be very important with the, you know, with your recommendation of your healthcare team. And as Dr. Kamrath said, there are times when you do need to come in, of course, um, to be seen or treated. Um, so, but wonderful perspective. And I know there'll be questions here in the Q&A, so thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian, Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. Bannon will address nutrition and hydration concerns and tips that are a very important area. So I now turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Um, today's presentation is very important. Um, I think it's important to know that there are many um, components and people um, that, that are, who are part of your healthcare team and that you, can, you need to utilize um, all resources that are available for you so you can get the most current and up-to-date information um, related to um, your treatment and to help you be successful. Um, nutrition and hydration are key. And not only do we know that it's the fuel and in, in, in the energy that gives our bodies um, what it needs to survive and to um, make it through the treatment um, journey, but it also gives us the energy to do the things that we enjoy doing. Now, we've heard today there's a lot of different treatments, um, different stages of treatment. And so knowing that each person is unique, um, this is where I want you to connect with your healthcare team on answering questions on your diet, um, any questions about um, things that you read on the internet, supplements, drinks, those sorts of things, reach out to the dietitian on your healthcare team and she can work, she or he can work in designing a plan that's best for you. Now, at different stages of your treatment, your diet can change um, just depending on what your needs are. But in general, um, what we work for patients to, to follow as much as possible is a plant-based diet. So what that turns into um, on your plate is about two-thirds of your plate being from a plant-based food. Now, this, these are things that um, are things like whole grains, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds. Um, and the importance of plant-based foods is they provide us fiber, antioxidants, phytochemicals, um, important components that we need for our body to function optimally. Um, throughout stages of your treatment, you may get these from different in different forms. You may get them in a canned form. You may get them in a cooked form. Or you may get them in a raw um, or fresh form, just depending on what your needs are. Um, fresh and frozen are perfectly healthy ways to get your plant-based foods. And at different times, canned, canned, the canned form of those foods may be part of the equation, just depending on your immunity, um, if you're at higher risk of infection, but it doesn't mean that you're not nourishing your body. It just means we're taking into account your unique needs at that time. And the goal is to consume a variety of colors. As basic as that is, it really is that basic. Um, the media and a lot of um, a lot of industry can confuse this information for patients, and it can be very overwhelming, and it really doesn't have to be. Um, so we're talking about two-thirds of the plate coming from a plant-based food, and then a third of the plate coming from a lean protein. Um, 
proteins such as wild-caught fish, um, including cold-water fish such as halibut, salmon, tuna, sardines, um, poultry, oftentimes even doing a plant-based protein such as beans, peas, or lentils can be a good option. And protein is very important. Um, it's very important to bring protein into your diet because it helps with tissue and cellular development. Um, and so that might be something that your dietitian may specify with you at different times of your treatment, uh, bringing in maybe a, a different type of protein um, for various reasons. Maybe you'll do more of a, 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 a you know, a plant-based protein. You may do more of an animal-based protein. So just knowing what your needs are throughout your journey is very important. Um, if you were not directed by your healthcare team to take supplements, please do not take them before talking with your healthcare team. Um, a lot of times it can seem very benign, and it seems very safe, and um, there can, a lot of times things can be advertised as, oh, it's just an herb, it's a, you know, it grows in your garden, it's very healthy for you, it can be, it's harmless. But when you're going through treatment, sometimes there are interactions that aren't on the surface or as easy to decipher. And so it's important to bring this, these questions to your healthcare team so they can make sure that it's the right thing at the right time for you. Um, Again, um, I know there's a lot of information out there, so trying to go for what's safe and appropriate for you is what we want to try and encourage. Now, hydration is something that can get lost in the shuffle. We talk about eating and keeping your energy up, uh, but hydration is actually incredibly important, and it can be over overlooked at times. Um, dehydration can happen. It can happen to us quickly, and so being hydrated each day is very important. Most folks need about um, 64 to 80 ounces of fluid a day. And fluid is um, anything that's liquid at room temperature. This can be water, milk, um, Gatorade. All of those are, are really um, great sources to hydrate yourself with. If you are having issues with nausea, excuse me, vomiting or diarrhea, there might be a need to modify and increase that. But talk with your healthcare team as if any of those um, side effects should um, rear their head. Um, oftentimes, folks along the way can um, experience different reactions to foods just depending on the treatment that you're receiving. So keeping a log of that and talking with your team about it is um, very helpful for them to help you. That really wraps it up for me today. I'm going to hand the line back over to Carolyn. Thank you for allowing me to be part of today's presentation. Uh, thank you so much, Ms. Jordan. That was excellent, and um, you always uh, bring up such wonderful nutritional uh, and hydration tips for everybody, and I'm sure everybody right now is salivating and thinking of what they're going to eat next, so fantastic. Thank you. Thanks so much, and I know the questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, I'm going to say a few words about cancer care, and then I'm going to take questions. So start to think of your questions, and um, so I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm an oncology social worker, and I'm director of education and training with cancer care. And I want to go over with you the free programs that Cancer Care provides. So Cancer Care is a national organization, and we are accessible um, via our HOPE line, which is 1-800-813-4673, or you can um, contact our website at www.cancercare.org, and that um, also is a way to, to access information or to, to connect with one of our staff at Cancer Care. Staff providing the support services at Cancer Care are oncology social workers. They're all master's level trained oncology social workers. And we provide both practical and financial assistance. The financial assistance is restricted to people in the United States. The other services are available to anyone, anyone in the world and to some extent 
if you were to email us about a concern, a question you had from other countries, we would try to connect you with resources um, in your community as well. So we really try very much to help people to connect um, with those resources that they need um, where they live. Um, in addition to that, we do offer you a chance to talk with our oncology social workers, either on the phone or online. And um, you may do that, um, just talk about many of the different issues or concerns that you may be struggling with. Um, they are available and they really will not only uh, talk with you, but they'll also, if you need a resource, they'll connect you to a resource. They will really handle all of your needs that, that you might have. And again, of course, your healthcare team, which we've talked about during the program, does include, of course, your healthcare team in addition to your uh, medical team, does also include uh, patient navigators, oncology social workers, oncology nurses. And so your team also have a whole group of people who can assist you with questions and concerns you may have. Um, we have to say that um, we also are helping people who are struggling with issues really related to um, hem um, with myelodysplastic syndrome, with any blood cancers, and also um, with COVID as well, 19. So basically, with any cancer, um, we are a resource for you. Now, with that being said, I'm going to ask Crystal to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to ask Crystal also to bring all of our speakers on board so that we may actually um, take your questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star and then one. So we have a question from one of our online participants for Dr. Messa. How does a low-dose transplant compare to a regular transplant? So that's an excellent question. So with transplant, the, the first part of the transplant is an individual receives typically medicines, sometimes medicine and radiation, but usually medicines, to largely clean out the bone marrow to allow the body to be able to accept the bone marrow from the donor, you know, and hence both getting rid of many of the cells affected by the MDS but allowing room for the other cells to come in. Now, the intensity of the chemotherapy uh, that one uses for that step that is called conditioning can vary in terms of its intensity. Most of the time for patients with MDS, we do transplants that are considered, you know, lower in intensity or, quote, you know, mini transplants. Uh, functionally, uh, although it sounds, you know, smaller, uh, you know, it doesn't really diminish to a significant degree, you know, what a, you know, significant and arduous process, you know, transplant is. These condition regimens, they exist a bit on a spectrum, and there are factors such as they will tend to use the full-intensity transplants uh, for individuals in particular if they have movement towards acute leukemia and the hematologists feel that it's key that there be more chemotherapy involved. But I would say the, the majority of, of bone marrow transplants at this time you know, fall in that category of lower intensity. Uh, R R Rami, anything that you would add to that in terms of, 
mini transplant for uh, MDS? No, I, I totally agree. I think you explained it very nicely. And yes, in, in reality, majority of the patients nowadays get what we call the reduced intensity. That was the technique that we were able to extend, you know, doing the transplants above age of 55. Rarely, rarely a full myeloablative transplant is considered maybe in younger patients, but you've explained it very nicely. Excellent. Well, thank you. Excellent. And um, a, a question now for Dr. Kamrashi. Um Is MDS hereditary? Is there anything my children can do to prevent getting it? That, that's another excellent question, and that's actually an evolving area. And in general, I would say the answer is no. Like in 95% of the cases, the answer is no, that it's not inherited. That's one of the first things I tell the patients. Actually, I say it's nothing that you did wrong. And in most of the cases, in majority of the cases, it's not inherited. We are learning that there are very rare forms of the MDS that are inherited. Typically, there will be very strong family history uh, that there are several members of the family had MDS or leukemia or low blood counts. There are certain uh, gene mutations, the one we were discussed. Most of the time we see those acquired, that they are just in the leukemia cells or the MDS cells. But there are very rare uh, circumstances where there are some of those mutations, we call them germline, which means that the patient had inherited uh, genes such as like RANX1 and other genes, uh, and those will increase the risk of MDS or developing MDS. So in general, 95%, it's not inherited. You don't have to worry about kids getting it, but when there is a strong family history, if we noted that there are several members that have it, then there are certain, you know, testing done, which is genetic screening, that include many of those genes that we would look at, and typically we do those tests either from skin or saliva because we want to look at cells other than the blood cells. Now, there is another entity we learned about recently in the past several years called CHIP, clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. That's different from inheritance. That's basically increased susceptibility of developing MDS, but by acquiring some of those mutations as we get older. So if we sequence 100 people walking in the street with no blood counts, no medical issues at all, above age of 70, probably 10 or 20% will have at least one mutation, gene mutation in the blood cells seen, we call them somatic mutations, and those are, you know, early on events, only 10-20% of the cells will carry them, uh, but we learned that those patients are at a higher susceptibility of developing MDS down the road. Um, we are starting to think of preventive studies in that area. Uh, we learned, for example, if somebody had a breast cancer or lung cancer and had those mutations present and they get the chemo, then their chances of developing therapy-related MDS, uh, MDS from the damage from the chemo is much higher. Those are not inherited. Those are we acquire by aging, and that tends to be more, more common. But the real inherited is probably less than 5%, and again, the clue is usually a strong family history, and then we can do some testing for that. Thank you. And this will be our last question. Thank you so much for Dr. Messer. My doctor says I have low-risk MDS and recommends watch and wait. Is it recommended that I get a second opinion? If you could just comment on that in a general way. Um. Sure. So, one, uh, I think second opinions, particularly with a disease like this, can always be helpful. You know, it depends a bit on, you know, is the first opinion from someone that really has 
you know, kind of an MDS-focused practice, or if they have a bit broader practice, sometimes, you know, that second opinion can be just a bit complementary. There can be, if you, you know, wish to be very proactive, there might be clinical trials that might be relevant, you know, for for the situation. So, uh, you know, I think second opinions can be very helpful. You know, they can either help to reassure that you're on the right path or at least sometimes learn some additional options, including, you know, clinical trials. You know, an important factor in the shared decision-making regarding, you know, medical treatment, you know, is realizing, you know, how, you know, proactive or aggressive, you know, the individual afflicted with the disease is, you know, so your opinion is very important. There are some people who are very proactive, want to do everything they can. There's others that, you know, prefer a bit more of a watch and wait sort of approach. You know, so I think it's fine to kind of find an alignment really with what mixes with your philosophy. Uh, and, you know, if you're more proactive, there may be, you know, a bit more that you can do, but that might be in the setting of a, of a clinical trial. Excellent. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. This has been an amazing uh, program today, and I want to thank all of you. I also want to thank all of our participants who also have asked really such great questions online, really a terrific group today. And I know we have many more questions in queue, so I will be addressing them, but I do want to thank our speakers and our participants for really making this such an amazing call today. And um, we would love to do more of these calls more often because we know there are many questions that you have and um, and also there's so many new things evolving that you've been hearing about today. So stay tuned. Um, but I do want to address, first of all, those of you who didn't perhaps get to ask the question. And, and I recognize that um, or even if you had, a, had the opportunity to ask a question, I would want you to know that Whatever information you've learned today, we hope you've learned a number of things today, that you'll bring it back to your treating healthcare team. That's so important because they know you the best. They know a great deal about you, and that's very important. Um, and um, so, um, and your healthcare team does consist of both your treating physicians. It also includes many other people for other issues that you may be struggling with right now. Um, now, in addition to that, um, any of the resources that we mentioned during the program today, any um, websites or numbers that we gave out, we'll be getting an evaluation, all of you will be getting an evaluation, um, probably um, within a few days of the program, and when you get that evaluation, it will include all the resources that we mentioned, so you'll have lots of resources, both of our mentioned today and also from some of the collaborating organizations that we're working with. And um, for those of you, and those, we also know that many of you would like to go to other resources to get information. Um, and we want you to be sure to go to credible resources, credible websites, websites that are very carefully reviewed, what we call by uh, the National Cancer Institute Centers of Excellence. Um, both of our physicians are at those NCI-designated centers, and there are many of them throughout the country. So we do recommend that you contact the National Cancer Institute, that's a wonderful resource to get information. They have both an 800 number and they have a live chat feature where you can go on their website and you can post a question and it will get you information you can then take back to your treating healthcare team. Remember, your treating healthcare team still knows the most about you. They actually do. 
And for those of you who wish to pursue further services from Cancer Care, um, please feel free to contact us at our 800 number or visit us at our website. Um, and our staff are happy to provide a number of different services for you, um, including the practical, the financial assistance, and the opportunity to talk with one of our oncology social workers about your concerns and questions. And with that being said, I want to thank all of you for participating today. And we don't want any one of you to leave the call feeling that you're alone. We want you to know that you're part now of a very large community of support. There are a lot of organizations out there for you, and we are here, all of us, um, to help you. So um, be aware of that, both your healthcare team and then all of these nonprofit organizations that are out there in the cancer world that really are there to help you. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.